0: Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster. Thanks to Cisco Systems at Exertis Ireland, providing a secure, intelligent platform for digital business. To hear more, visit intelligentit.ie. And you're very welcome along to another Leaders Questions where Stuart Lancaster speaks to some of the brightest minds in business and sport and tries to see what it is that makes them tick as leaders. Stuart, you're very welcome. Thank you, Joe. So um, this week we're talking to Bill Bezek. Before we introduce Bill, why is Bill somebody that's important and what do you think about um, his leadership Development skills that has uh, is something that you've kind of benefited from
1: Well, I would say bill has a well probably singly the biggest influence of my career So uh, that's why you know, I think it's interesting for everyone to have a listen to what Bill's got to say um, we met uh, I was invited to go as a, a academy coach to a leadership conference in France and Bill was the um, presenter at the conference and um, uh, he, he came across really well, and we ended up connecting at the end of the event I think he saw something in me as well. I would just taken over as uh, head coach of Leeds Tykes at the time. They'd just been relegated from the Premiership and we had to build a team to get promoted into, into back into the Premiership. And uh, he sort of helped me through that year. Um, we then got promoted to the Premiership and then we started going from winning lots of games to losing lots of games. So I needed his help even more. Uh, and then we stayed in contact and obviously during um, that development time but also into the England Saxons job and international coaching versus club coaching then the interim job with England and then the England job, so um, he was there throughout really and uh, you know, we established a you know, really strong relationship, um, very, very supportive of me, challenged me in the right way um, and you know, having worked in many other sports um, and with many other head coaches you know, it was invaluable uh, learning for me about how, how to be better.
0: You had to be very open-minded to go looking for help at that point instead of being, well I know everything, I've just got this job and I'm quite a young man so why do I need to get help?
1: I was a long way from uh, uh, thinking I knew everything, um, and uh, I think sometimes, you know, when when you're on a, a coaching pathway or a leadership pathway, sometimes mentors just appear um, at the right place at the right time, and that's the way it was. Um, you know, I wasn't searching at the time, but it certainly worked out that way, and uh, it was a f- it, it has been a huge benefit to me throughout my career.
0: Bill, good afternoon to you. How are you doing? Good afternoon, good yeah Good afternoon, Stuart. Hi, Bill. Thanks very much for doing this for us. Um, a couple of things strike me. We'll get into your relationship with with Stuart in a little while, but you, you've got like decades now of being involved in sports psychology and helping leaders evolve. It, it, it wasn't always um, a very easy field to get into. So it, it's interesting that somebody like Stuart is kind of a, an open door that you're able to push with ideas at the time when he's there. Was that always the case? Do you remember a time when actually... You know, you were on the fringes of um, sports organizations and, and maybe people were a little bit suspicious of some of the
2: ideas that you had. was oh, Very much so. My start was as a coach. Uh, I was a basketball coach and uh, coached the national team for five years. And it was as a coach, I became more and more fascinated by attitude and character. The talent thing I understood from the start. But it was the character and attitude of the players that fascinated me. And I made the switch to sports psychology, but at that time, the macho culture in sport was such that players thought it a sign of weakness to share their feelings. Now, fortunately, modern education's changed, and the generation coming through, the millennials and the Z generation, are much more open. and And the big help to me was the foreign players, because when foreign players came into football, which is where I met, spent most of my time. They were very familiar with uh, mentoring and counselling and, and sought help straight away. And the English players saw them and responded uh, accordingly. But Stewart's great strength was humility. And that's what attracted me to Stuart. He he's a typical Cumbrian and he never knows it all. And that's his greatest strength, in my opinion.
0: Uh, can you maybe then come back to to circle back around to that? When when you are meeting people who are curious and interested in what you're doing and, and believe that you can have an influence on them, they, they I presume that's the, the best type of people to, to work with. But what are the kind of key things that, like, How do you begin to get your messages across to people? What do you focus on at the start?
2: Well, mostly questions rather than the direction. I, I see myself as a thinking partner more than a teacher. The people I'm dealing with have to develop their own style, their own knowledge base, their own credibility, and I'm a guide on that pathway. So although I can give examples from a variety of sports and a variety of head coaches, I'm, I am largely base my counseling work or my mentoring work on being a thinking partner and asking good questions and allowing the knowledge and information to emerge from the young
1: coach. What's that process like for you? (laughs) Challenging, challenging. Um, We used to meet uh, at uh, uh, YMCA in um, Manchester, and Bill had a little room that we'd go into. It was actually a little chapel, was it, Bill? I mean, I don't know how you describe it, but um, (laughs) chapel. (laughs) I felt like I was going to meet like a, you know, a higher purpose, a higher God, and uh, uh, Bill would sit there and. uh, you know, he did ask lots of questions, but equally he gave me lots of information as well. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, he would stimulate me and I'd come away, i often judge by, you know, I'd go on lots of courses and meet lots of people and, you know, i make lots of notes about what I've taken from them. When I'd leave Bill's office or chapel, uh, I'd leave with like, you know, five or six pages of things to think about. Um, so he, he definitely shaped my philosophy in terms of, Probably confirmed a lot of things I thought, um, but yeah, he would he would ask me questions. Um, what's he asking you? How how, how did you win? Um, um, what would you do differently? Um, what's the reason? One of the biggest things he always says is, "What's the reason why you're gonna you're gonna win this game?" Or you know, so how how are you gonna articulate that to your players? Actually, interestingly, I've been coaching today, and we've got a game um, this weekend, and I actually asked the players that very question. I said, "Right, we're playing against." Um, this team from Wales, um, what's their reason why they want to beat Leinster in this particular game? Give me three things. So they went one, two, three straight away. OK, so what's our reason why we want to... Because obviously we, you know, we've, we've been successful, we're there to be shot at now. And you know, if, 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 if we don't meet them emotionally at the same level, um, such as the quality in the league now then, you know, we, w- we won't win the game. And uh, Bill will be a big one on that, on, on making sure the reason why we want to play this game and the motiv- the intrinsic motivation is as high as it can be with the team that you've got. Um, that was a big, big thing we talked about a lot.
0: Yeah. Uh, 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 so, these are questions. You're saying he's also giving you some information. What type of information are you getting at that kind of early enough stage in your career?
1: Uh, things that he'd learned, you know, in terms of his own philosophy and things that... Um, uh, he would have tried, and and you know, I was I was so curious to know about. So, how did Alex Ferguson, you know, because obviously Bill worked in, in Manchester United. How did Alex Ferguson do things? What was what was it Alex Ferguson and Steve McClaren? You know, what was what, what's it like working with the uh, the Roy Kings, the the best of the best? How do you get the best out of them? You know, so um, how do you motivate the the superstar, uh, et cetera, et cetera? So, yeah. so many different things um, that that we talked about these are good questions we might just ask Bill. (laughs) Can you maybe
0: spool us back a little bit before we get to the kind of nuts and bolts of what happens at Manchester United? So, again, I'm not sure that the whole world would have had Alex Ferguson pinned as somebody who would have embraced the culture of somebody coming in to speak to his players about performance. You know, there was a general sense of him being somebody who wanted to set the tone and the agenda and make sure that everybody kind of followed to that. But clearly he was open to ideas from outside. And you can see from his, even from his coaching, the way he, he hired coaches all the way to Carlos Quiros and to the very end, that he did want players who came from outside and he wanted coaches who came from outside to give him ideas of what else was going on in the world. So what was your role in all that?
2: Well, it was Steve McLaren that went to Manchester United as assistant manager that took me along. So Alex accepted me because Steve recommended me. And Alex's greatest uh, strength was his control of the situation. He had 33 international players, all with varying ego strengths. But he controlled it absolutely. And I realized that when uh, I asked him, could I speak to the first team, um, explain my role, explain the kind of things they might want to see me about which is a very important start for a sports psychologist in a a club. And I could see he was very hesitant about that because he has such a control to let somebody else talk to his team. was very difficult for him. Um, But I got uh, smart. I I was quite experienced by that stage. He 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 agreed to let me speak to the team. On the morning I was speaking to the team, I went in at 7 o'clock knowing that he'd be the only person in the training ground. So he'd finished his training. He was making tea and toast. I I made a cup of tea with him and I said, can you spare 10 minutes? And he said, yeah, come in, Bill. And I gave him my talk for the first team. I said, could you check that for me? Because I'd like to know that you're comfortable with it. So he sat at his desk and read the the talk I was going to give to the team. And he started ticking things off, underlining things, highlighting things. And he said, I really like this. I really like this. Can you make a big point of that? What else can you say about that? So by the time that 10, 20 minutes had elapsed, he owned the speech. So when he introduced me to the players, it wasn't with hesitation. It was like, listen to this, boys. This is good stuff. You need to hear this. And I think that got me off on a really good footing with uh, Alex in the sense that he learned to trust me. My instincts were good with the team. I wasn't going to argue points that he would differ from.
0: That definitely helps. I know, too, that um, I was just researching this and Roy Keane name checks you when he's the manager of Sunderland. He says that you're somebody that he has spoken to at that point as well. What was your relationship like with Keane?
2: Well, um, Roy is tough. Uh, Any relationship with Roy is tough because he's the most honest athlete I've ever worked with. Um, But he is a really, really nice man. I really liked him. Um, and we learned to trust each other and we learned to share with each other um, and he was consumed with getting better he didn't want small talk he didn't want praise he wanted me to look at his game look at his performance and say you might consider this to try and find an extra 1% perhaps think about this Uh, I also think he needed somebody neutral. I'm very neutral. I'm not emotionally involved with the teams I'm with, although I do support them, of course. But I am somebody that they learn to trust. Everything with me is confidential. Um, And I think Roy wanted a neutral figure, a slightly older figure at that time, to share his ideas and share his anxieties with. And, and it was a very good relay. I learned as much from Roy as he learned from me, but trust
0: me. Because I, w- I was reading some of the stuff that you've said and, you know, just talking about um, every day it's a choice, physical, technical, tactical, but the mind is the means. And, and that definitely put me, you know, like the, the whole notion of Roy Keane at training is, is fairly famous. Did you have any experience of the, the Keane persona on the training field?
2: Well, a a story I can share with you, and I I I think my friend Steve McLaren wouldn't mind. Um, I've heard him talk about this publicly. But he came from Derby County to Manchester United in the space of three days. Um, His life was turned upside down. He was the assistant manager of Manchester United. So for his first day's training, he decided that he would take a fun approach and get to know them and, 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 and make it a little bit more social. So he did team relays and team competitions to try and bed himself in. And partway through this, Roy, who'd lost a a competition and was made to do press-ups, walked off the field. He did say something, but I'm not going to repeat it (laughs) Yeah. He walked off the field and, and went home. And when I got back from Derby County that evening, Steve was on the phone to me and explained to me he was really devastated. His captain i walked off the field in the first day of training, and I said, you've got to ring Roy, and that was like asking somebody to catch a hand grenade. Uh, oh, I said, you've got to ring Roy. One principle of coaching is never let today's problem roll into tomorrow. It gets worse. Deal with it now. He rang Roy, and two hours later he rang me and said, I've just had a master class in coaching. The only thing that Roy is interested in is hard work and challenge because that's what prepares him to go out in front of 75,000 people and television cameras on a Saturday. If he's not worked hard during the week, he doesn't feel ready for the performance on a Saturday. And I'd taken one of those training sessions that he needs so badly and abused it by doing things that weren't relevant to the game. That was Roy. He was very honest, very tough-minded, but actually, very intelligent and perceptive about what top players
1: needed. Is this where Tuesday comes from? <laughs> Who do you think he reminds you of? <laughs> which which rugby player do you think I'm coaching at the moment? <laughs> I mean, you, what Bill's describing there is, is Johnny. You know, is Johnny Sexton. I mean, that's that's exactly what Johnny's like, and uh, that's that's why he like Roy's. You know, right over there with the best of the best, um, because he wants that challenge the whole time. Um, he wants to get better. He's driven to get better. He drives it in other people, um, and as a coach, you have to be on point. You know, you can't you can't waste a minute. You can't waste a training session. You've got to know what you're doing, and you've got to make sure you deliver it in a effective way that gets the best out of him and the others. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess you know, I've my roles have varied th- through my career. Um, you know, with with the academy role at Leeds, I was a hands-on coach from 30 to 35, and I was growing all the time as a coach because I was coaching day in day out. Then I was the Leeds Tykes coach, and again, I was coaching, you know, head coaching. But then I got dragged more and more into the the bigger picture stuff um, with the Leeds job and th- delegated some of the coaching to um, my assistants. England then comes around, and I'm coaching England Saxons, albeit it's, it's, it's limited because there's the Churchill Cup and, like, six or seven games a year. Um, but I'm seeing other organisations, but I'm actually doing as much hands-on coaching. And then the England job, I think we've discussed in the past, you know, it's... Uh, the title was head coach, but I gravitated again away from coaching. There's so many other things that needed dealing with, you know, the bigger picture stuff on leadership and management, which I knew I could do. But the the beauty of the uh, the Leinster job really for me is that I'm coaching again, so I'm the the Steve McLaren, if you like, um, who's who's doing this Tuesdays. And uh, so I spend my time now thinking all about how can I challenge these players, make these players better, create instincts in them that become hardwired, so that when they play in the big games in Europe and in the Pro 14. We can deliver under pressure that's
0: that's a very interesting development because you want to challenge them every day, but you still want to inculcate habits and it's that like when you know when the uh, karate kid wax on and wax off that he gets bored but at the end of it he can do the things that the teacher wants him to do. How do you keep the the training sessions so interesting that they're not bored or do you care about that like is there a today might be a little bit boring lads, but at the end of it everybody's going to understand where the body position needs to be at the rook or whatever it is that you're specifically working on.
1: Yeah, no, I wouldn't say they would ever be boring. They should never be boring. Um, they should always be competitive. There should always be challenging there. What you do is you flex between how hard the challenge is. So if your team is slightly low on confidence and you know, you might make it um, subtly more um, uh, easily, e- easier for the attack to achieve success over the defence by the way in which you create speed of ball, or you, the numbers that you put in the defensive line, or or whatever. Or sometimes you might uh, recognise that you've got a big game coming and you want them to f- feel failure and, 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 and have that sense of anxiety going into a big game, so that Christ, we need to be on point here because you know it's happening at the moment. You know we've got we've got two teams training flat out, and because of the way the the system works in Ireland, some of the the more senior Ireland players are, are actually in the the non starting fifteen, so effectively the lads who are playing are getting prepped with like the playing against you know Johnny Sexton, Robbie Henshaw, Gary Ringrose, and it's brilliant. But sometimes I have to pair them back a bit so the team that's going out is can confident. Win, yeah, yeah. Ex- yeah, exactly. So it's just, and that's that's the subtlety of coaching. I think that people often miss. You know, it's 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 intensity, it's duration. So you can challenge them through skill set, through mindset. Um, and uh, the best coaches I've worked with, they just seem to pick the right tools out of the box at the right time, uh, on any given session. And there's always a, but there's all it should never be boring.
0: The, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was complacency or coming up against an opponent who you're very confident the team knows they can win. So we're recording this just after the all Ireland Football Final, where the Dublin team knew that they were far superior if they showed up to their opponents. And there were a couple of times last year where you were playing teams in big games who you'd just recently beaten in a big game where everything was on the line, and you knew that if your team performed at that level, how do you change the messaging? Do you change the messaging? Do you have to be aware of that? Because all their mates are telling them, and all their WhatsApp groups are buzzing with, ooh, this is going to be easy this weekend. Like, somehow you've got to counteract that
1: yeah yeah I mean bill billwood bill talk this actually there's a sort of spectrum of you know um anxiety and fear and complacency and confidence you know and and where you sit on this um th- this spectrum you know you you want you want your team to be confident but you want that element of anxiety leading into a big game so that you're not complacent but you don't want it to be so overwhelming that they're fearful of making a mistake and they can't they can't deliver so it goes back to um, the mindset really, you know, so um, you, you obviously, if you're prepping to play against a team that you perceive stronger than them, then clearly you don't show all their weaknesses. You just show their strengths and talk about, the, you know, the reason this team can hurt us is because of X, Y and Z, let's have a look at this, and you show them evidence. Um, you challenge them in training, um, your, our own team in training, so that perhaps they don't achieve that much success, so they're thinking, we're not quite ready here, we need to be you know, extra prepared. Um so all little tools like that. And then we make sure that the motivation for winning the game, you know, so what's the motivation to win after winning? You know, the Dublin team as you've just described, you know, they've done it four times on the bounce. You know, we had success last year with the European Cup and the Pro fourteen title. Um, can we win after win after winning? Um well I, I cited the Crusaders um, this year who won Super Uber last year, Super Uber this year. That's what champion teams do. So and the art of coaching is to give that motivation. So I would use, you know, I've talked about the Patriots, mm. you know, winning the Super Bowl five times. Well, Leinster have won the European Cup four times. Why can't we be the first team to win the European Cup five times? You know, that's got to be a goal and a driver for us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a different psychology this year because, you know, last year we lost in two semifinals. Um, and, you know, that hurt. And the, and the reason why we wanted to win was, was huge inside us for the whole of the season. You know, and the art of what Leo and I need to do this year is to is to make sure we're we're that competitive. And internal competition drives that as well, for selection and the way in which you you create the challenge in training. So you talk about Tuesdays; you want it tough and competitive, so that actually the game feels, by comparison, you know, I'm ready for this because I've done it week in week out during it's Tuesday. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, Bill, what what would your advice be? To somebody in, in Stuart's situation this time, where the team is the best team in Europe and has clearly swept all before them. Was the best team in Europe. Was the best team in Europe last season. Um, what, what is the. How do you prepare that mindset? What are, what are the tricks that you've learned over the years?
2: Stuart just had a great point. Was. Um, it, it, the key, the great coach moves the great teams on from every game. They take the win. They did take the learning out of it, and then they start with a blank piece of paper. If they look as though they're too confident, we inject anxiety. If they look anxious, we inject confidence. All during the week, that mindset's regulated. And Stuart talked before, early in the show, about the reason why. You need to program the software as well as program the hardware. On the training field and in the gym, we're programming the hardware, but you need to program the software as well. And, and they need to be, see each game as discreet. So you made a good point before, Jean. The The conversations around winners change. When you're not winning, the conversations are different. When you begin to be a winner, the conversations around the players at home, social media change. And they lull the player into thinking that winning is now automatic. It's the coach's job to offset that, to change those conversations internally. And, and again, Stuart's just giving you one, one of the key ways you, you change the mindset of a team. Introduce five new players. All of a sudden, you've shaken up the balance of things. Players players left out the team are now questioning why. They've got greater anxiety of what am I not doing. You keep the team on edge. But never, let, never roll on from the game before as though it's a continuum. Every game is discreet. Every game is its own challenge. Every game needs preparation in exactly the same way as the one before.
0: In your experience, how much of this was instinctive in the, the truly great managers of the past and how much of it was actually something that they learned and ad- adopted over the, the, the
2: period of time that they would have been in their peak? Well, the instinctive part was wanting to win every game, every game. Every game is important to the to the great coaches, the great managers. The learning part was the strategies about closing down the game the previous week, taking the learning out, integrating that, and then moving on and creating a new collective mindset in the team during the week, building that mindset up. So Saturday became... A very important game, not just another game in the season, but a very important game. And being courageous enough to recognize the team is not in a good place mentally and make some tough changes, like I said, introduce five new players in the team. Take your five seniors and leave them on the bench for the 60th minute onwards. Coaching is about being brave, but it's about recognizing I'm not comfortable where the team is. And need to do something before the game escapes me,
0: obviously this isn't something that you kind of impact on a um a date you don 't decide this is what we 're going to do. It's, culture takes a long time to seep into an organization. When you look back at your time at England and you look back at your time and, and at the various stages of Leeds, like how quickly did it take you to get to a point where you were happy with the culture
1: um, i think it, I think it's it's, it depends on the context. So if I, if I was to describe, you know, how would I build a team, culture would be very much at the, the base of the period, the most important building block, the foundation. Um, then, you know, identity, what do we stand for, who we're we playing for, um, what's the shirt mean to us. Um, the higher purpose is the, is the next stage, and, and so it goes up to ultimately the players driving the whole thing. Um, so a lot for the teams I've worked in depended on the evolution and the maturity of the team. So when I was at Leeds the team had been relegated, all the players had gone, there was only seven players left, so we had to start from scratch. But because it was my team, because I'd played there as a, as a player and it meant so much to me, I guess my passion for the team and the organisation and the, and the county and the people um, rippled through the players. And, and the, the reason why we all wanted to play for Leeds was was driven through the pre-season. Interestingly, um, a, a great learning experience for me my first game of the season. Um, I did so much on the software, as Bill has described, we actually came to the first game of the season against London Welsh at home, and we lost. And I remember one of the the, the captain, the most experienced player in the team, turned around to me and said, "I felt exhausted, and I realised I'd take them too far emotionally. They wanted to win too much, and they were emotionally spent before the game had even started because so, such was their desire to um, to want to win." And uh, how do you calm that down, though? Because yeah, well, it, it was it was it was my fault really, because because I. Know, kept talking about it, you know, and I made it bigger and bigger. So it's that old, you know, the optimum arousal and the on and the inverted U. You know, you want to hit them, don't take them too far where they start to drop their performance. You know, you want to hit that sweet spot. Um, and I'd, I'd take them over the edge, and that was a great learning experience in that first game for me, first senior game of coaching. So what do you do now that you didn't do? Or, I just recognise, I recognise, through experience, I recognise the psychology of the group earlier and better, and then have more tools available to either... Bring it up or or, or pare it down. Um, I think that's that's what experience has taught me. Um, and uh, Bill made an interesting point there about um, the great coaches wanting to win. One thing y- you learn um, as an international coach, it's all about winning. So it sharpens your mind um, to you know. So now I'm at Leinster, and uh, uh, you know you could argue that we don't need to win every game, but I know the pain of losing, and I know the pain of losing on the on the highest and the biggest stage. And it's not a pain I ever want repeated. So what I actually think I'm a better coach now because I went through those tough times, um, because I'm more ruthless in my mindset, I'm more driven, um, because of the enjoyment of success, but equally the pain of losing, you know, is so, so deep. Um, but you you can't get you can't get the um, the success without the foundation. And you know, coming into Leinster. Culturally very strong, very strong identity. Um, within England, um, culturally, you know, we were on the back of the two thousand World Cup. There were a lot of things that needed fixing. Um, and, you know, I changed a lot of the players, dropped a lot of senior players, but a lot of younger players in, talked about the reason why playing for England, talked about the identity, about being English. Uh, and gradually, you know, we changed things. And people say it takes... You know, weeks or years or months to years to change a culture. I just don't think it does. Um, I think we we almost did it in a week. It's then keeping that culture alive that takes the time,
0: nursing it and making sure that it isn't being poisoned or
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. So so you're you're being absolutely um, ruthless in your in your your, you know identification of anyone that might take energy away from that team or that culture that you've you've created. Whether it's you know, and obviously that's based on on trust, um, on you know ownership. All those little things that, that make up a, a strong team. Someone said to me the other day, well, what, how could you define a good culture? And I, I think um, three things, really. One, good people want to join your organisation. Two, good people who are in your organisation stay longer than expected. And three, um, when they leave the organisation, which some people will, they say that was the best time of my career. That's, for me, a good definition of what a good culture is. If people are leaving your organisation and uh, not wanting to come in, then... Something like
0: Yeah, for sure. Bill, your background was um, basketball. You won, a, I think, a Commonwealth Gold with uh, a basketball team. How transferable were the skill sets from sport to sport? Is, does it actually matter which sport you're talking to people about? Does it turn out at the end of the day everybody is just human and we've got exactly the same anxieties, irrespective of whether or not you're a, a basketballer standing over a shot or if you're David Beckham over a free kick?
2: Correct. Uh, I think what transfers mostly is the people skills. To get the best out of a basketball team is, is, is not much different from getting the best out of a rugby team, a football team. The, we, sports are a question of balance between human doings and human beings. And initially when I started coaching and uh, my generation was 90% human doings, telling them what to do, command and control and very little about human doings. They just did what we told them to do. Now I think it's, it's almost reversed. Now, sport is about connecting with human beings and making them want to play for you and and want to give the commitment and the effort. And I think that coaching in basketball was very much, for me, uh, 66 games all around the world, was very much getting the best out of a bunch of young men who were perhaps inferior in talent terms to many of the teams we played and still getting some decent results. And that taught me a great deal because our talent base was low because we were small England and we were playing world level teams. But our attitude level, our effort level, our commitment level was fantastic. And that, that was a major lesson that's transferred across to every team I've worked with.
0: In terms of the culture conversation that we've been having there, from your perspective, has it been easy enough for you to identify weak cultures or where there have been issues when you've been asked to go in? Is it, is it a fairly obvious thing to anybody who's there?
2: I have a friend, uh, a very good friend, called Steve Harrison, who was uh, a top football coach. And we worked together for a number of years. and We used to call him the snipper because he used to say he could go into any sports club and sniff, and he'd know within an hour what the culture of that club was. And he used to define it as, he'd watch people if they had a sense of purpose, if they were moving quickly because they were engaged, if they were bright-eyed, if there was a lot of communication going on and humour, if people walking past nodded to him and acknowledged him, they were comfortable in their own skins. You could begin to list a number of points that says, this is an organization where people matter. This is an organization where players have a sense of purpose, where coaches are comfortable with the players, where everybody's engaged in some purpose, worthwhile activity. But this time for human connections to exist and develop. And I think the sniffer had it right. I think if you go into Leinster, on an, any day you chose, you'd see all those positives and you'd sniff and say, this is a good club to be
1: in. Yeah. The- yeah, no, I think, I, think, I think you would. I think if you, if you came in and um, all those things Bill's just described, you know, you, you'd see those. You'd see those on a daily basis. Joe Schmidt actually, interestingly, brought in, a, I think when he came from France, a, um, a handshake meeting. You know, greet, everyone shakes the hand, and it's still there now. So when, you know, I've had guests come in who've, come from um, the UK, said, listen, we're interested to in see Leinster, and you know, Leah's very welcoming, and certainly very much an open-door policy, and they all, when they all leave, they'll go, "Geez, that was a really, really positive environment to come in. Now, it doesn't guarantee winning, but it goes a long way towards helping you win, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, I know you're, you're saying that um, because you've come from international coaching, you realise that winning is absolutely everything. It is sport, though. Defeat will happen, like... You know, we talk to jockeys and they're like, if I've got a 10% streak of winning, I'm doing really well. And so they have to get used to losing all the time. Um, do you get better at losing or worse as this all goes on?
1: Worse. <laughs> worse. Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, the, it's never easy. It's never easy losing. Um, why My um, mindset, probably shaped a lot by what Bill and I would talk about is, I'd have to go from what's the problem to what's the solution as quickly as as possible. Because it's my job to reshape the mindset after losing. Um, And so as a coach, if you're dragging it around 24, 48 hours after the game, then you've got no chance of of helping your team win the next game. So you you become very resilient um, at dealing with it and um, trying to get from the problem, why did we lose, to what's the solution, here are three things, I think if we do this, we can win next week. Um, but that takes a lot of mental stress yourself as a coach, because often, particularly in a ruby, as a rugby coach, you know, American football coach, maybe you've got some influence or more influence on the outcome because you're calling the plays. A lot of the time, you've got zero influence uh, uh, or limited influence. Maybe a few substitutions you can make here and there, and maybe five minutes at half time. But um, um, that's what we sign up to, um, and uh, you do get you get used to the feeling of. Um, I don't have full control here, but the pain of losing um, never goes away and actually drives you to be a better coach.
0: Yeah. Is that where you're comfortable in chaos comes from, is that you have to be comfortable with the chaos of the the play that's out there, and if they have a little sense of, well, okay, at least they can actually influence it? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I do think there's something about, I mean, I'm not saying my demeanour's right. Um, you know, lots of coaches do, do different things, but I often think that if a coach is in the box showing ill-discipline, showing lack of emotional control, um, I think it often reflects in the team. You know, you look at the Dublin football team, you know, Jim Gavin, he doesn't give much away, does he? No. You know, he's completely calm and in control of his emotions. He knows exactly what's going on. And even through the stressful moments, he looks calm. And, comp- and I think that's the way his team plays. Um, and I think uh, um, that's something I think is really important because I think often teams take on the personality of the coach. You know, I could think of a... If you talk Australia New Zealand uh, rugby union teams, you look at um, the New Zealand coaching blocks and the Australian coaching blocks, the difference in, in, the, in, the, in the two coaches in, in Steve Hansen and Michael Checker and, but also how sometimes that can mirror in the team as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I think passion is important uh, but it's making sure it's channeled in the right way as a coach. Um, so you've got Discipline, passion. Yeah. Bill, you
0: know, the, the whole notion of that, you think about Alex Ferguson on the sideline, but you kind of think of Ferguson as a, he was a gambler in real life, and his teams took gambles late in matches. There, there's kind of been a caricature of Ferguson as somebody who was just ranting and raving the whole time, but clearly he was unbelievably calculating throughout that whole period. So, I, I, you know, I can see how people be going, oh, hang on a second now, Ferguson was kind of prone to those bouts of rage, but his team were also prone to bouts of rage, and it didn't do them that much harm.
2: I think that's a media image. I never saw that. I mean, he was tough. By God, he was tough. Um, but he, was, he gave his team two great qualities. He gave them belief and trust. When they went on the field, they had his belief that they were the best team. And they had his trust because he sat back and let them play. He didn't try to manage the game. He might manage some substitutions. He had let his team take responsibility for the outcome of the game. And they thrived on it. They loved it. They learned to do what they needed to do. A great coach in America, Phil Jackson, uh, coached the Los Angeles Lakers basketball team. And he decided that his team couldn't solve problems on the court the way they should do. So he stopped all communication to them. He didn't call any timeouts. He didn't do any pregame talks. He just left them. And slowly, instead of looking at him, they began to sort their own problems out. Ferguson was very much like that. He wanted them to take responsibility on the field. He was very smart in terms of, and and ahead of his time, in terms of giving players that great sense that they could take a risk, make a mistake, and there was no punishment. In fact, he would applaud them. He wanted his teams to pray bravely. He was a brave man. He wanted his teams to play bravely, and if you played bravely and lost, he was he was with you one hundred percent. That was his strength. He took defeats much better than people think he did.
0: One last question on that raises an interesting point. Um, certain players at different scale stages and scales of being ready to step up and, and be the leader. How do you judge what stage somebody's at? Somebody can be a, a born leader at 21 and they arrive in the team and they're ready to go and they want to go up and take the toss and push the captain out of the way and make decisions. Others are very talented but just need a little bit more of the guidance and structure in their lives. Is that just about having conversation with them and watching how they respond to things? Or do you have to give everybody kind of the same opportunities and the same identical Access to these are the leadership qualities we expect of you, and you need to go and do a an ex- little bit of extra work on this.
1: Yeah, I think there's more to it than 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 expecting, really. Um, and the other point I'd make is just on what you said there: there are very, very few 21 year olds who I've seen come through in the way you've just described. You know, um, the the development of leadership I think is absolutely fundamental in the in the winning of in, in teams in teams that win, um, and uh, um, the best teams have. Uh, you know, as Bill described that Manchester United team great leaders throughout the team um, as well as a great manager obviously um, if I look at the Leinster team that won the European Cup we had you know, obviously a great captain in Easton Asiwa um, but you had great leaders throughout the team who could manage those tough moments in that, in that final against Racing um, and come out on the other side without losing composure without losing confidence without losing belief and deliver I mean ultimately we kicked the final penalty to win the game on 78 minutes 26 seconds so um but it doesn't happen by accident and i think you know leadership generally your leadership will develop through experience but as a as a as a coach of a team um you can't wait until um a 21 year old becomes 28 29 30 in order to become a better leader so you need to accelerate their development by artificially giving them some leadership opportunities by giving them some leadership development by giving them ideas about how they can become a better leader and for me you know we've got great leaders in in Leinster, emerging leadership groups such as James Ryan or um, Gary Ringrose, Luke McGrath. Are they conversations or are they like, here's a scenario? Yeah, well, it's more, well, my, I think lots of coaches are different. I I would um, spend as much time on developing the young leaders in the team as well as coaching the team. Um, So an an example would be um, I would raise their self-awareness of their own personality. So you know, a simple psych- psychometric, a little um, questionnaire fill in, what t- work out what type of personality they are. Get them to think about themselves as, as an individual. What what were they introverted? Are They extroverted? Um, are they good communicated? You know, are they ex- are they um, directive? Are they a team player? Are they detail orientated? Are they um, the guy who likes singing you know on the back of the bus? So we're all a mixture of these personalities, and it's raising the awareness of their own personality and saying. Okay, well, these are your strengths, but here's some areas you need to work on. And sometimes you'd get three sixty degree feedback, or I would send them leadership um, thoughts to read. I'd give them um, movies to watch. There's a brilliant, the brilliant one I've just watched actually. I need to, I need to tell Bill um, that uh, is on um, the leadership in uh, the twelve AFL teams in Aussie Rules, Um, and uh, um, it's on Vimeo. I'm going to have to remember the name now because obviously everyone's going to be asking. Uh, and um, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant example of player development and players driving um, the leadership in teams. So I would send them that to watch. I would find examples of leadership that have taken place in other sports and relay that to the emerging leadership group to try and keep developing them.
0: So it's a constant evolving conversation. All the time. All the time. They're and, aware of it as, as a thing that actually yeah. as opposed to... So it's not this kind of... You're not sneaking it into them. Oh, you know, I'm... I'm kind of backdooring here, some uh, or no. grandfathering in some information that's going to make you a better leader. It's like, we want to turn you into a better leader. This is an important part of your development as a, a person we can trust.
1: Yeah, 100%. And uh, so I think that uh, uh, it's, it's critical. It's critical. Um, because, you know, we have... Uh, Caelan Doris would be a good example. So he's Ireland under-20s captain. So he plays his first senior game for Leinster. As, and he's been the captain. But the temptation is for Caelan Doris is to, to walk across the, the white line and just be, um, I'm on the field. I don't want to upset anyone. I don't want to say too much. That's entirely opposite of what we want from Caelan Doris. What we want Caelan Doris is to be the captain, who's captain of Ireland 20s, talking, communicating, leading, making decisions, um, influencing players around him, getting the best out of people, motivating, inspiring. Um, and the and I found this a lot in in Ireland actually. Since I've been over here, um, there's a very respectful hierarchy that can emerge, and I've. What I've tried to do, and he's uh, probably played um, me my... Not the biggest compliment, but one something he said, said to me, he says you've given the young players a voice and say they now feel confident to speak in meetings, but they have to because a, t- a team of rugby players, it, you don't win by just having great leaders. All 15 players have to lead in their own way. Um, and if you've got a guy who's just delivering maybe just the technical side of the game, um, I don't think that's going to win you lots of, lots of games, but it won't win you the European Cup or the Pro 14. Um, and the Cairn Doris example is, is, a, is a good one. Yeah. Uh, Bill, it sounds like um, you've taught Stuart pretty well.
2: <laughs> well. Well, I watch Leinster all the time because I'm Stuart's biggest fan. And uh, what, what occurs to me about Leinster is they've got the ultimate leadership. They've got pop-up leadership. No matter what the situation is and where the situation is on the field, whoever's in that position to deal with it, deals with it, takes responsibility, shows character. And for me, that's the ultimate leadership, that given any situation that occurred on the field, whoever from our team is there will deal with it, will step up and deal with it. So that's why young players need a voice, because it might be two young players dealing with a situation which is the defining moment of the game. They need to step up and deal with it.
0: Good stuff, Phil. It's been great having you with us on. Thanks a million for making the time for us. We really appreciate it. Nice to see you again. Okay, so by the miracle of uh, our editing software, we're now able to tell you exactly
1: what the name of that (laughs) Australian documentary is. There's two. Um, It's called The Chosen Few, Okay, um, and there's one called The Chosen Few 2. The Chosen Few um, is by a guy called Peter Dixon, D-I-C-K-S-O-N, and it's on Vimeo, and he did a documentary on the head coaches of all the AFL teams in 2015. And then he followed it with The Chosen Few 2, which is all the uh, captains of the team. And they're both an hour and a half long each, um, and they are the best documentaries I've seen. I can't believe I've missed them. They're on YouTube anyway, so you might have to search around to find them. But Why? What's so good about them? Because he really gets into the detail of what it feels like to be a head coach. Um, and he gets into the detail about what it feels to be in that lonely leadership position. Um, so from a coaching perspective, it's, it's, I would love to have something done in rugby in the same way um, to actually really get people to understand. And, and, and the, the captain's one is, is not even better, but it's as good for me because it allowed me to pass on to, to our, our players. These are um, guys who with the equivalent to you operating in a, in a huge sport in Australia and the pressures and uh, responsibility of being a leader within a team.
0: Would most coaches feel happy about the fact that this stuff gets revealed or is there still a sense of fear about allowing yourself to be seen to be somebody, you know, so I don't know if you watch Hard Knocks, so the, yeah, the yeah. HBO series yeah. and um, uh, I listen to a, a podcast that does a breakdown of it every week and the guy who does the breakdown has worked for all of the greatest owners and coaches of all time. He was part of Belichick's team at Cleveland, his name's is Mike Lombardi and He's actually just written a book, called, which I think you might be interested in, called Gridiron Genius, where he talks about working under all those great coaches. But he has been absolutely savaging the coach of the Cleveland Browns for saying the culture's all wrong. There's too many people who are actually in charge, and the, there's like a, five or ten different people coming up with the messaging, and the messaging is all wrong in the first place as well. And so the, the difficulty and the danger is... Yeah,
1: I think it's slightly different from Hard Knocks. Um, so Hard Knocks basically invites um, a, a camera team into your whole of your pre-season. Um, this is a one-to-one interview with a coach and all the coaches. And and you're right, I mean, I get the sense, and I know a couple of the AFL coaches, um, you didn't get much out of one of them in particular, and that's probably his choice. But other coaches gave a real insight. Um, You're right about the Hard Knocks thing, though, because I find myself watching that sometimes wincing a little bit. um, And, you know, I got asked um, before the World Cup, you know, can we do a fly-on-the-wall documentary? Um, And not that I was fearful of you know, um, stuff coming out. But there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that you don't want out there for, for IP, you know. Nobody intellectual, looks good intellectual 24 pro- hours a day. Intellectual property. But no, you just you don't want to give all your, you know, your, your secrets away, number one. Um, uh, and number two, the last thing I needed at the time was a, a distraction of a camera crew following me around and listening to every move that I made. But I would welcome the opportunity to talk about um, leadership and coaching um, within the context of sport because, you know, I think it helps other people and that's what, if you are a coach, you, you should be motivated to help other people get better and build good teams. So if you can, and this is, to us, this is the idea behind this, isn't it? Yeah. The whole thing is just about, okay, let's speak to some people who are um, in leadership positions who work in business and sport. And if if someone takes away one nugget from Bill Bezick or Sophie Goldschmidt or whoever it is, then it's going to be worthwhile.
0: Yeah, and the thing is, once you lift the rock, you see that there are so many different things underneath it that you can actually get into if you want to uh, learn about The Chosen Few as a documentary. But there's loads of other stuff as well.
1: Yeah. yeah,
0: We might um, tweet out a, a reading list of recommended... Homework. Yeah,
1: well, we, we actually went on a um, a, a leadership Development with Lenston not so long ago. And the guy presenting, I'll leave, him, leave his name out of it, um, he actually said, well, Here's my um, my reading list for the year, uh, the best five books I've read. And it was like, I love that. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> tick, 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 tick. I get those ordered. Yeah. So, yeah, people just need that sometimes, don't they? They need you know, to be pointed in the direction of where, where the good leadership books are because there's so many out there. And you can drive yourself mad by going through every one, trying to find those nuggets. Where actually, some of them possess a load of nuggets and we should all gravitate a to those.
0: Yeah, for sure. sure, great stuff. Thanks very much. Thank you. Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster. Thanks to Cisco Systems at Exertus Ireland, providing a secure, intelligent platform for digital business. To hear more, visit intelligentit.ie.